Now the background, of course, to 2 Samuel 7 has been the establishment of David as king over all Israel. Just to borrow from the words of our text itself in verse number 9, we are told there that God has given David a great name. He is marked as fame, or as famous in light of the fact that he has now ascended to king over all Israel. We see in verse number 1 that the Lord has given him rest round about from all his enemies. And so the previous chapters that dealt with the excursions of the Philistines, those things are past, and he's knowing a season of rest at this point. Given that, we see again that David has a burden to honor the Lord. We saw that before in his desire to bring the ark into Jerusalem. That was not a superstitious thing as it was for some. The ark attended like some sort of charm. Rather, it was for David a reflection of his profound desire to turn the people away from apostasy to worship the one true and living God as God had commanded. So his desire was to bring the ark back into Jerusalem. And it is in that continued burden that we see the desire he has, the honorable desire he has, to build a house for the Lord in recognition of the stability of the nation, in recognition of the, if you like, the reformation of the people. There is a desire to put in place a permanent place for God to be worshipped and for God to dwell with his people. That is his burden. It is indeed an honorable desire. Now again, you've got to be careful when you read this portion. You may think that the Lord disapproves of David's desire. That is not the case. God will do it. He will do that very thing in Solomon's reign. Solomon will indeed build a house. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. In reference to Solomon's reign that is yet to come. But, for various reasons, it is the Lord's will that it would not be David who would establish the house of God. It likely has to do with the part of David being a man of war and some of those things and various matters. We're not even told all the reasons. But we are given a clear word that it would not be God's will for David to build the house at that time. You know, there is the possibility that this is a theme that carries through First and Second Samuel. People who think they're doing the right thing, but the Lord comes and says, no, not that way. You think of Eli's concern regarding Hannah. She was honorable and he misjudged her. You think of Samuel going to the house of Jesse and looking upon the eldest son. No, not that way, this way. You think even the, the new cart, not that way, but God's way. And so it may well be just another time, a recognition that we must do God's will in his time and in his way. And so sometimes, and let's just take a, a passing note of application, there may be times in our lives when we think we're doing the right thing, but we may be doing the wrong thing. I, <laughs> We are not living in direct revelation. And so how do you apply that for us today? Well, just make sure your actions are according to the Word of God. You have a clear word of testimony. This is the way, walk ye in it. 
But in light of all of that background, and we'll, we'll come back to some of those things next Lord's Day when we look at David's prayer in verse 18 and following. But in light of all that background, we come, we come to a promise that comes from God to David. And let me say this. I believe this is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. This sits there with the likes of Genesis chapter 3 and the promise that God will send the Redeemer to crush the serpent's head. It stands up there with Exodus chapter 12 and the promise of the Passover. It's up there with Exodus chapter 20. It's up there with the likes of Genesis chapter 12 in Abraham's call. This is a passage that is absolutely foundational if you understand the Bible. You get this wrong and you'll fall in other ways. You will not properly understand the book of Acts and you will not properly understand the book of Revelation. This is vital to understand what's happening here as God makes a promise to David. It ties the Bible together. And it would be my suspicion that when the Lord on the road to Emmaus opened up the scriptures to the men who were walking there, to his disciples, it is my conviction and my suspicion at least that he spent some time in this portion of scripture. This is something we must all grasp and understand very clearly. And so God makes plain the promise, you will not build me a house, but turning it around and, uh, and using the word in a different sense, as we'll see, verse 11 says, the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. Nathan, of course, being used to transmit the word of God to David. And so as we think of this promise, let's begin by considering the form of the promise. It's a promise. We've got that there. Verse 11, he will make thee an house. That's an assured promise. But what we do not see here but it is revealed elsewhere that this promise comes in the form of a covenant. We saw this morning in Bible class the nature of covenants in the Scriptures and how the covenants in the Word of God, they are a solemn promise with the binding of an oath. And so turn to Psalm 89, please, the 89th Psalm. And you'll see that as this promise is recounted, by Ethan, the Ezraite, in this psalm, in Psalm 89 and the verse number 28, it says there, My mercy will I keep for him forevermore. Remember what the Lord says to David later on in 2 Samuel 7, My mercy shall not depart from him as it did from Saul. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also, verse 29, will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. And then down in verse number 39, my covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David, his seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. See there the words, the explanatory words of the psalm indicating this promise is covenantal. And there you see verse number 35, once I have sworn by my holiness. 
recognize again the solemnity of this promise. It is absolutely unbreakable. Now, again, you've got to understand the concept of Hebrews chapter 6. It is not that God swears with an oath because his word is not certain. That would be very wrong thought. But rather he swears with an oath for our benefit that we would see the immutability of the promise that we would see the absolute veracity of the Word of God, that we understand that God will not lie and this will not break. In other words, if this is so, we ought to be looking for a king of David sitting upon the throne. That's what we should be doing. We go, well, how does this work out? We have a promise that cannot be broken. Where is the king of David upon David's throne? See, David himself understood this. Peter tells us this in the Pentecostal sermon, Acts chapter 2, referring to David as a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. There's the foretaste of what's to come. This promise is absolutely certain and Christ will sit upon the throne of David. That's the form of the promise. Secondly, what about the features of the promise, very briefly? Well, a couple of things to highlight. A son of David shall sit upon the throne. You've got that there. It's on down through the text, verse number 12 and following. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. The throne of his kingdom, verse 13, forever. And we saw the concept, the language of the 89th Psalm. And again, it is the idea of a son of David sitting upon the throne. Verse number 15 is important. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul. What's the difference between the house of David and the house of Saul? Grace alone. It's only grace. You know, you should not think in any way that David is more worthy of God's favor than Saul. You shouldn't think in any way that Solomon was more worthy than the sons of Saul. Jonathan, a mighty man. And yet God in his mercy put his favor upon the house of David, not upon the house of Saul. And the word mercy that's used there is the word that we see often in the Old Testament. It is that word has said. It has to do with the covenantal faithfulness of God, the loving kindness of God. It is the mercy of God, and it shall not depart away from him. It's only by grace alone. And let me just pause and remind you all again, the only thing that makes you differ from someone else is God's grace alone. That's it. If we are truly understanding the doctrines of grace, that is fundamental. It's only grace that makes the difference. And so get rid of your pride. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. And yet the longer we are saved, the more we sometimes build this notion that we are worthy of God's favor. Now, we were not worthy of God's favor when he first called us, and we're not worthy of God's favor now. For even in our very best of days, we're still tainted with unbelief and corruption and remaining sin. It's only grace and the fact that God's grace is not taken from us. And again, just to ground this biblically, 
the reason that God's grace is not taken from you, dear child of God, is because God's grace is not taken from the house of David. God looks with favor upon David's house, from whom will come the Messiah. And that foundational kingdom of grace is the reason whereby you have the confidence that being a recipient of God's grace, it will never depart from you. It is a son of David upon the throne. It's also an everlasting kingdom. Verse 16, Thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. This everlasting kingdom, verse number 19, when David comes to pray about this, he understands the significance. He says, But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. He recognizes, he almost understates it. This is a monumental situation. By the way, it may well be sometimes the word forever is used in the Hebrew for a very, very long time. But we understand, of course, when we see this worked out further, we understand this indeed refers to Christ's everlasting kingdom, an eternal kingdom that has no end. And so the promise of this son of David upon the throne, an everlasting kingdom, is the explanation of verse number 11, where he says, the Lord will make thee an house. It's not talking about a physical structure. Verse 1 says, the king sat in his house. And so the whole concept here is not so much of a building as it is a dynasty, an unbreakable dynasty that will see Christ coming. You see, let me show you a couple of places where the word house is used in this sense. Over in the Psalm 127. In the Psalm 127. Because there are some, and they, they minimize the idea of this promise as referring to an earthly kingdom. But what we're seeing here is the word house has the profoundly greater significance. Verse number 1 of the Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain, not build it. We, we understand. We understand in this psalm that it's not referring to a physical structure. So verse number 3 says, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord. And so the word house is being used in the sense of a progeny, in the sense of a dynasty, a development of generation upon generation. It's a glorious promise. You see, over in the, the Proverbs chapter 14, Proverbs chapter 14, you'll see it used in that sense also. Proverbs 14, verse 1, Every wise woman buildeth her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. And clearly, in the language of the wisdom literature, it's referring to the generations to come. That the wise woman has consideration for her children in terms of their spiritual well-being. But the foolish woman who has no insight into the things of God, she pulls down her house because ultimately she's not raising her children in the things of God's. The wise woman, she's walking in God's way. The foolish woman, not in God's way. She destroys, but the wise woman builds her house. And so you see these things, these, these principles are written through the Word of God. So we understand very clearly, Second Samuel chapter 7, and the promise of a house is then developed in the language that follows regarding Solomon and his kingdom. 
which leads clearly to the third matter, and that is the fulfillment of the promise. Initially, this promise is fulfilled in Solomon. One son, but the beginning, or should I say the continuation of the Davidic line. You see, verse 12 and 13 clearly refer directly to Solomon. Verse 12, he shall build an house for my name. How do we know it refers to Solomon? Because he built a house for God's name. It's obvious. It's referring to Solomon. But that's when things become, or at least begin to get more difficult. Because if you're a careful student of the word of God, you will then continue to read through the kings. You'll then repeat some of the things in the chronicles. And you'll come to the conviction What's happening with the promise of God to David? Things don't seem to be going to plan. It continues for some time in the line of Judah. Judah was faithful in the division of the kingdoms. The northern kingdom very quickly go into apostasy, but Judah, with some problems, remains faithful for a time. Do you know, by again, by a lot of by the ways tonight. By the way, that's another proof of this promise. Because God shows his faithfulness in Judah by chastening them and restoring them, by chastening them and restoring them, by chastening them and restoring them. We see God's promise that was given to Solomon. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him. A promise that continued throughout the generations. And again, I can't help but mention this. My mercy, verse number 15, that shall not depart, includes the mercy for God to chasten his children. God is not against you when the rod is applied in your life. God has not removed his said, his loving kindness, when the rod is applied in your life. It is God disciplining and training us and molding us and causing us to be more like Christ Jesus. It is his mercy that brings the rod upon us. As hard as that might be, that is God's mercy. But... Coming back to the problem of the line, we understand the sins of the kings they build and they build. And so please turn to Ezekiel chapter 21. You see, I have said to you already, 2 Samuel 7 is fundamental in the biblical narrative. And you see, you've got to, you've got to feel the weight of this. You've got, to, you've got to have the trouble in your mind. And so Ezekiel, this is just one example. Verse 25, and thou profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come when iniquity shall have an end, thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. You see, we see the problem and the solution in the text. It's in vision, it's in prophecy, but it is the warning of the iniquity of the children of Israel that the crown is removed and we get towards the the time of the exit or the time of the captivity and we say, what about the promise? And you know, God, of course, understands that question. And so laced through the major prophets, We have the promise of David 
recapped upon, built up upon. You go back to Isaiah chapter 11. Again, I'm being selective here. This is such a dominant theme that as you read these books for yourself, you will see time and time again references to David and the promise to David and his seed. But Isaiah 11, verse number 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. And then note verse 3. And shall make him of quick understanding and the fear of the Lord. And here's the work of a king. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes. Neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor. And reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And so forth. This is our righteous king coming in the line of Jesse. The promise being given of course to a wayward people who are about to head into captivity. The diadem is being taken off, but God is saying, my promise will not fail to come to pass. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice for henceforth, even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Or turn across to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33, and the verse number 14. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah in those days. And at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely, and this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord or Righteousness." Now, you folks are so well-versed when it comes to the doctrine of justification that you immediately understand this to be a reference to Messiah. But let's imagine, just for the sake of argument tonight, let's imagine that you are one, and you're like Hannah, or Anna, sorry, or you're like Simeon, and you're in the temple, and you're waiting for the consolation of Israel. What are you waiting for? Well, it's expressed in Matthew chapter 12, and all the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David? That's the sense of expectation there was. That's how important this promise was. It was etched in the people's minds. God has promised that a king shall reign on David's throne. And so Christ comes, Jesus comes, and they wonder, is this not the son of David? And so this promise is ultimately fulfilled. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That is the definitive answer of Scripture. We see it, we've seen it time and time and time again in our studies in Luke. Jesus is the one who comes and fulfills the promise to David. Now you'll see in your outline there are four lines of reasoning here that these four things must be true if Jesus does indeed fulfill the promise to David. First of all, his genealogy must be in the line of David. Well, 
Is that so? Well, Matthew chapter 1, verse number 1. You see again the gospel writer as he writes to the Jews about the kingdom, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. And I believe very deliberately he begins with David, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's emphasizing again, yes, the continuity of the promises, but he's emphasizing as he's going to teach about the kingdom and the king, Jesus is the son of David. And so the genealogy is given. Joseph, his father, as was thought, is of the line of David. Legally, he's in David's line. Of course, this was confirmed by Luke in so many ways. Mary was espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. You turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, the verse number 32. Here's a, a recap on Luke's gospel. We're not getting far away from it. Luke chapter 1 and the verse number 32. And you'll see again, these are the things that come to pass. Luke 1, verse number 32, the Word of God tells us, He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Folks, you, you understand these things, you know these things. I, I almost feel I'm laboring unnecessarily, but I'm showing you again that Second Samuel 7 is vitally important. And God does not fail to keep his covenantal promise. Verse number 69 of the same chapter, Luke chapter 1. Zacharias, filled with the Holy Ghost, hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You see, if you are an unsaved person tonight, you want to know where is salvation found? It's found nowhere else but in the house of God's servant David. That's where salvation is found. It's found in Christ alone. You think of the language of Luke chapter 2, verse number 4. Joseph goes to the city of David. Verse number 11. The angels for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He's there because his genealogy is of the line of David. And so Paul in Romans chapter 1 will say this. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. That's part of the gospel. His genealogy is in the line of David. Secondly, we think of Jesus' obedience. If he is a true son of David, he must be an obedient son of David. That was a condition of the covenant. That they would obey the word of God. Clearly, Christ Jesus is seen as the son of David throughout his earthly ministry. The blind men, they come, they follow him, they say, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And the Lord does not rebuke or deny those claims. Rather, he asserts himself. You're in, you're in Luke, turn to Luke chapter 20. The Lord never denies the claims that he is the son of David. And so in his earthly ministry, people are asking the question, Is this truly the son of David? Luke 20, the verse number 41. The Lord says, How say they that Christ is David's son? David himself saith in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, of course, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? You know the discussion here. The son of David in the promise is greater than David. He is David's Lord. 
Of course, it refers to the deity of Jesus Christ. But for now, I'm simply showing you here that Christ himself said, I am the son of David. And he could do so in part because the Lord understood he was a perfectly obedient son of David. The 40th Psalm, God's law is upon his heart. He obeys the law of God perfectly from his heart. He obeys even to the death, the death of the cross. His entire life is one of obedience. You should not think that Jesus only obeys when he dies. He's obedient unto death, all the way to death. Every step on the way to death, he's obedient. And therefore, he does not disqualify himself by one iota, not one jot or tittle, does he disqualify himself from being a son of David. The perfectly righteous king. Remember we said this morning? Clean hands and a pure heart. None cleaner, none purer. To ascend the hill, to ascend to the throne of David, his son. And so we have here, of course, the recognition of Jesus' obedience. Thirdly, we think of Jesus' victory. If he is a son of David... He must indeed be victorious. You see, when you think of the language of 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says there, I will establish his kingdom. Now, what does that mean in terms of, if you like, eastern kingdoms? What does that mean practically? Well, it means that all his enemies are defeated. It means that none can overthrow the kingdom of David. Christ has indeed secured the victory. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that come with the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest refers to Psalm 118. Turn very quickly there, Psalm 118. I think we saw this when we looked through the Gospel of Luke and we recognized the triumphant entry of Christ into Jerusalem. It, it highlights the fact that he's son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. And Psalm 118 refers to that. Verse number 25 Save now, that's the word Hosanna. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And when that's referred to in the Gospels, it refers to the coming of the Son of David. But this psalm is actually all about a victorious king. Look at verse 11. They compassed me about, yea, they compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Verse 16, the right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doth valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. That's a profoundly messianic reality. That Christ lives in the power of an endless life. Having secured the victory, they compassed him about. All the dogs, all the evil Gentiles, they all compass around the Christ of God. Satan and his hosts. This is their hour in the power of darkness, but they do not triumph. Christ conquers. He wins the day. He is indeed the conquering son of David whose throne is established. And then finally, we think of Christ's reign. Over in Acts chapter 2, once more in Acts chapter 2, I referred to this already. It's such an important portion. I referred to how David is a prophet, verse number 30. He knows that God has sworn with an oath that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. You know, we don't need to be confused 
regarding any earthly son of David coming to sit in any earthly throne of David, we are told directly in the book of Acts here that the promise that God makes to David is fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ in his triumphant ascension to sit upon the throne. And so as we are to look, where is the promise? How is it fulfilled? Where is the son upon David's throne? As I said to this morning, I say tonight again, look up. He ascends in glory. He's received up into glory as the conquering king, and he reigns upon the throne of David. This is what we know to be biblical theology. There's different forms of theology. Biblical theology is tracing a theme throughout the Word of God. To me, it is one of the most edifying forms of Christian doctrine, for it ties together the Scriptures that we may be convinced that God is a God of truth. A God who is faithful, who keeps his promises. You see, the promise of grace in David's house is a promise of grace to all of us through Christ Jesus. Grace does not depart from David's house, and thereby grace is available to all who would submit themselves to King Jesus. He would turn away from their rebellion. I don't know what king you follow tonight, But if it is not the King Christ, then you are following the wrong king. And there is no grace in any other king. God's grace is only found in connection with the kingdom of David and David's greater son, Christ Jesus. So you face tonight a choice again. The Bible is very, very clear. There is one king reigning in heaven upon the throne of David, And it is our responsibility to bow the knee to that king, to worship him, to adore him, to confess that we are sinners, but that he is Lord, and to recognize that the only way, the only way to know peace in this world is to put down our arms of rebellion and sue for peace from a gracious king. You know the great comfort is? You read the realms of human history. And you read of some very, very wicked kings. And you may read of some, some person who for a time rebelled against the king and the rebellion was crushed. And they go for the king and they plead for mercy. And the king says, off with his head. You know, we've rebelled against Christ. And yet Christ in his mercy, when we come and we sue for mercy, he will never say, depart from me. That day will come. But if we sue for mercy for Christ right now, he is willing to receive us. He's willing to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is our king. And of course, if Christ is such a king, then it is the joy and delight of the child of God to say, Here am I, Lord. Or in the language of Saul, what wilt thou have me to do? How can I serve my king? And I'm going to say in a few seconds and then we'll close. We should go to our king to ask for things. But the Christian life is not all about simply continuing and saying, what can I get? It's what can I do to serve my king? What can I do to exalt his kingdom? What battles should I fight? What weapon must I take? It is, of course, the Word of God. And I must take the Word of God and seek, seek to communicate my King to others. 
for his glory. Oh yes, our king, he is a gracious king. He receives us with mercy and with favor. We long to serve him. We long to obey him. We don't fight with his will. We consent to his will. We're glad to hear the king says, go here and we go. Do this and we do. It's a dreadful thing when a Christian is rebellious against their king. What does that mean? How is that even possible? Well, we know it's possible, but it makes no sense. What a glorious king we have. And we should gladly submit to his will. But you know, this king, there is no greater king. There's no greater kingdom to be part of. Because the king comes, as all good kings ought to do, he comes and protects his subjects. But our king is no earthly king. He cannot fail to protect us. He will succeed in protecting us from every attack of the evil one. He gives us everything we need. He's never miserly. He's not a king that holds back grace. He's not a king that holds back good gifts. He gives us every gift for our good. He knows what harms us. He knows what's good for us. And he gives it graciously and freely. And of course, our King Christ gives the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. And so we can pray, Father, give me the Spirit tonight. As a church, we can pray, send forth the Spirit of God upon us. It's a very simple promise. He will make thee in house. But it is foundational to the very gospel. And may God help us to appreciate it again tonight. For his name's sake, let's pray. Oh, eternal God and Father, we want to be those who understand your word. And yet, O oh Lord, we, we, we must have the balm of Gilead to our souls. As we consider the Scriptures, we want to know the comfort and the, the strength that the Word of God gives us. Oh yes, we, we understand the rebukes they come, and we are, we are often not submissive to Christ, but we thank you, O oh Lord, that our King is so gracious, abundant in loving kindness. O oh Lord, may we never grow bitter against our King. May we realize that our king is just and fair and kind. He sees the actions of wicked men against us. And he understands that the day will come when he will rain judgment upon their heads. He sees our weakness and gives us grace. He knows all about us. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths. Help us to live in light of them. That this week we would not go out in fear, but in confidence. What a thing it is to say, I'm a child of the King. Christ is my King. He who won the victory on the cross, he's my King. I will not fear what man can do unto me. Strengthen our souls tonight, we pray. Give us grace and wisdom in Jesus' precious name. Amen.